0: You know, I think about us, the three of us, what we could be. I think about it all the time.
1: Please, it's dear. No, it's not.
0: I know Jim. She's my friend. I care about her. How's your day going? You look
2: pretty. Thanks. I wore not just for you. Her father's a driver named Nick. He helped me
1: to
3: survive. Yes, you can, because I can't lose you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. What about you? Your girlfriend is a badass. Welcome to Above the Garage, a Nick and June, The Handmaid's Tale podcast. Hi friends, welcome to our deep dive into season two, episode 12 of The Handmaid's Tale, which is entitled Postpartum. Let's do our round of introductions and dive in. Hi, I'm Scarlett. Hi, I'm Ginger. Hi, I'm Tina. And I'm Kate.
0: I was looking for it. We were talking. There's a, there was a script note that was cut. Um, it was a voiceover that June was supposed to say. I'm not sure if it was supposed to be the very opening scene with Lydia or the scene in the church. But the, she was supposed to say, those shots I fired that cry for help brought me back to this hell to be drained of hope to vanish. But I do it again to save my baby, even though I'll never see her again or Hannah or Nick. And I just think that's very I think. A criticism I think June gets sometimes is that she doesn't think of Nick outside, like unless he's like in the, in the um, space, right? Like unless he's like right in front of her, she's not thinking about him, which is not true as we've seen here in this in season two. And I think especially in season four, you really see that, you know, she's, you know, out of Gilead, completely removed from Nick. And she is still thinking of him, you know, when she holds Holly and tells him, you know, your daddy and I love you. Um, That's one of the first times she really has peace, I think, in Canada when she gets there. So, I know, I don't think that's really a valid criticism. You know, I wish they had kept this in for many reasons, just because I like when she refers to Nick, but I think that would have helped show that progression of her character. Like, you know, Ginger talked about, it's a good way to show how her feelings are evolving towards Nick and they're becoming more real as, you know, time goes on through the show.
1: Yeah. And I agree. And that's why I think she finally was able to say, I love you to him in the next episode. It's like it comes full circle in a way. Like she realizes, I don't know, their time is limited and she feels it and she doesn't want to deny herself from feeling that anymore. Like once she gets to Canada, you can, you definitely can tell she's thinking about Nick, but then you can also tell that she's trying not to think too much because if she does, you know, she doesn't think she's ever going to see him again. And then obviously, 4-9 changes all that. Um, but actually, while we're talking about, them well four nine and all that i thought you know it was interesting when fred has nick hanging the picture in his office of fred serena and the baby they're supposed to be like the real family but then we flash to the next episode where nick finally does get to hold holly for the first time and then you do see the real family here nick june and the baby like the real family made out of love and then i also think of four nine where you know, Nick and June and Holly are together again, because you have Nick in black, he's a commander. You have June wearing the red handmade coat, but she's wearing a teal sweatshirt, which I feel like is kind of representing, she's his, you know, but she also was a handmaid. And then you have Holly slash Nicole dressed in pink. I, I love how it kind of like that all ties into each other. And it, it is like, it comes full circle and we see who the real
0: family is. One of the things I love, you know, so much about them is they were able to form against all odds in this terrible place, this real little family, and it never changes. It hasn't gone away four seasons in and it's still, the love is still there. It's just. It gets stronger. Yeah.
1: I also had another note too about the office, you know, when Fred is telling Nick he's a hero and everything, and he's saying to him, the future is full of possibilities for both of us and things are going to happen for you. I feel like this is already him working on the plan of making Nick a commander and sending him off to war. Like, good things are going to happen to you. Like, you're going to get this promotion. It seemed threatening. Yeah, I agree. Which I didn't get when I first watched. But like now rewatching, I realize like that there's a lot of foreshadowing happening there because he's going to reward him.
2: Yeah, that was that was kind of my note, you know, going to season three when Nick says when he goes to see June and she tells him, how did this happen? And he tells her, it was my due. Like that line always throws me off. I'm like, what do you mean it was your due? You were due for what? Like he wasn't like how do promotions work on Gilead? We know he got promoted when he got married to Eden, but he it's not like he was, we've seen him throughout the season actively campaigning to be a commander. It's not something that he wanted. You know, he just decided to be an eye to actually spy on these commanders. So we know that this is something that Fred did. When he says, you know, it's my due, it made me think of that, you know, that conversation he has with with Fred in this episode. But I also kind of also maybe took it, it was his due as kind of all the things that he has done for June have a consequence. And in part, that's part of that consequence, you know, because he gets promoted because of what happens in the next episode.
0: That's what I was thinking. His due could also mean like his punishment. That's always how I interpret it. It was a punishment for helping June as much as he had. And, you know, we talked about how all, you know, Commander Waterford does, Fred, is he wants to sweep stuff under the rug, right? So he knows that Nick is going to help June escape. Well, I'll just promote him and we'll sweep that under the rug. We don't even need to investigate it. Like, you know, he's a commander now, it's done. So it tracks with,
2: you know, how Fred deals with problems true well that's what he says you know we always look out for each other we have things on each other mm-hmm. if Fred you know Fred obviously doesn't know that Nick is an I at least not now so if if Fred talks you know Nick is gonna talk and it's it's gonna cancel each other out even though Fred technically is more powerful he's still a founding father and even in that conversation and in the conversation when Nick gets married you know they're still at an equal they're sitting equal they're standing equal even though Nick is in a lower position, Fred is obviously more powerful. But it's interesting because Fred has obviously all the power, so he's supposed to quote-unquote win. But since Nick is so good at playing the long game, in the end, it, he does, Fred's not the one that wins, you know, obviously if you think about the season finale. It's all Nick played his game, he played the long game, he waited, and he went in for half the kill or the pre-kill
3: because june did the kill i love that he saved the kill for june i think that was the most gentlemanly thing that he's yeah, ever done and he's definitely. a very gentlemanly gentleman but i also love that he couldn't resist for pistol whip but he deserved that pistol whip
1: i, I actually at episode when we were talking about the finale we were all speculating and i think some people had said like they thought june was probably gonna kill fred in the woods i i remember saying i really hope he at least
0: gets like one punch in and, you know especially after watching this this episode where he you know tortured nick making him hang that picture on the wall like oh yeah he really earned that pistol whip oh my goodness just there's a lot of like repressed anger and frustration in that in that hit
3: yeah that whole scene is just staring him death stares. do you guys think i mean fred never bonds with a baby right Like this is, I think I started to talk about earlier and like that church scene is pretty much the only time we see Fred holding the baby. Is that correct? I think so. And he looks awkward doing it. Yeah. And from this point forth, it's an entirely Serena, like single mother effort. And he doesn't give a shit about the baby much like like everybody else in his entire life. But I think it's interesting that you never see him even like pretend to care about the baby. I wonder do you guys do you guys think it's because I guess it's probably because he knows it's not his because I guess in season four he seems to think that he's going to have feelings for his real baby.
0: I think he only cares about her so much and how she can give him power um, because you know at the end of 2.13 when he realizes they're gonna be late she's gone he's freaking out he's like where's my baby you took my baby because if the baby's gone that's trouble for him it's not so much that he cares about her but it's because of the trouble it's going to cause you know and then in season three he wants her back because he can use her to leverage political power he doesn't care so much about her he cares about what she can do or be for him
3: what do you think he'd be like as a biological dad though in season four slash five if he were allowed to do so do you think he'd be a good dad do you think it could do you think he has those feelings in him
0: no i don't think so
3: yeah i don't think he can truly love at this point he's so toxic
0: i think it'd be the same type of relationship how can i use this baby to make myself better to give myself more power to leverage something for me he doesn't understand love i mean he's he's made that clear
1: he's said it in season one and he's made it clear like every season since he just doesn't get it so i don't think a biological child would really change that for him
3: yeah he seems like legitimately baffled by the concept of love (laughs) which sad for
2: you Fred. now he got something that he didn't have before which is power you know so why would he give that up if that fills him up and that makes him feel good about himself whereas before i do think that he loved serena
3: but does it make him feel good i feel like he's a miserable human being the power makes him feel good is what i meant no i know i just don't think well I, I do think he's a miserable human being. Yeah, but. I mean, I think he thinks it makes him feel good. But, it doesn't. but it's
1: only going to make you feel good for so long because it's not, it's not something, like love obviously like fulfills people. The power is just not going to because power is not something that's going to stay.
2: Yeah, but you know, for him, love is a weakness. So why would he, you know, he doesn't want to be weak anymore. He wants to be powerful. That's what drives him. So he's not, he's not, we're going to see it obviously, but he's not going to see it. He's going to feel, fulfilled and you know you know powerful i guess
0: let's see what i think fred fails to understand is that love is not necessarily weakness you most of the characters and i think what i really love about june and nick is they find strength in love yeah right so Mm -hmm. he's completely you know if you would just love something and actually love it i mean i don't think he's capable but if he was capable you know it would not make him weaker it would make him stronger yeah you know power
3: is so empty like Mm -hmm. he doesn't really get anything well
1: if
0: him and serena act
3: like
1: stayed in love i think they would actually be a, a real power couple but they constantly undermine each other because there's struggle for power
3: but the point is like love is what actually feeds you i think feeds your soul well
2: because he loved serena but he he let you know he let her have like the lead and he felt that she was an appreciative of it so now why would he do that again that's the way that i see it i do think that he love Serena very very much and obviously in their journey like she fucked that up for herself and for him and the whole insecurity and everything that comes with it but that's why they are where they are because of that what you said Ginger they're their power crap
3: I was just gonna say that basket of muffins because in the beginning of the episode Aunt Lydia says that so many couples want you because you're I don't know so many couples want you and she said one of them even sent a basket of muffins and it just reminded me of in season three when a basket of muffins takes on a wholly more important meaning in season three like setting up for angel's flight
1: i love that i have that same no. i love that
3: it was muffins were yes and what was no scones <laughs> i don't i agree with that that's how i feel about muffins and scones <laughs> no offense to uh, our british listeners or anyone that has been yeah, but not brand scone,
1: muffins yeah. i'd rather a scone over a brand muffin.
3: I don't know. So I studied in Scotland for a while, and I still didn't fall in love with scones. I don't know. I'm not a scone person. I would take a brand muffin over a scone. I guess is what I'm saying. What about you guys? All right, Ginger chooses scone. Scarlet and Tina, muffin.
0: Uh, uh, muffin.
3: It's only because we're all American. Well, I'm always
0: saying
1: I'm always saying scone because I don't want a brand muffin. If it's a different one, then I'll choose the muffin. No, but that's the,
3: that's the decision we have here. Yeah. Scones are great though, people love scones. Everybody loves scones, this is not, this is just a random sampling of Americans are not scone people.
1: The Lawrence one that I wanted to expand upon was, um, so Eleanor gets upset like when she's talking to Emily and talking about how he was the, it was his idea to start the colonies and she was horrified by it and like that set her off and we know she has like mental health issues. And I did think it was like really sweet that she's freaking out and he was so patient and loving with her. Like, and he did, you know, put her in that room, you know, he leans on the door, like showing that it's breaking her heart, seeing her that upset. And I think he did that because we find out in season three that Gilead won't allow her to take the medication that she needs. So like there's really not a whole lot he can do for her to help her. So I just, I don't know, as much as Lawrence, like, you know, he's a, He's a back and forth character where sometimes you, you like him and sometimes you don't. And you know, he's the creator of the Gilead economy and the colonies, but I do think it's really sweet just how much he loves her.
2: Yeah. Since you're talking about that, it's just I personally think that he's not a Gilead believer per se. Like like he wasn't, I don't think he was even a member of the Sense of Jacob. Like I was trying to research a little bit about his background and the researches that I do. He was a writer you know, and obviously we assume he was an economist. Um, He wrote several books like Serena, but obviously as a man, he was gonna have a lot more pull and a lot more power. So they kind of assume that he sided with the sons of Jacob because it was the right moment and the right place for him to put his policies to to a test, I guess. Um, And some of the books that he wrote uh, was The Brink of Extinction. And they think that's probably also a book about the infertility epidemic. Problematic populism, upheaval during the infertility crisis and the long-term effects on American prosperity, the case for relaunching the mercantile economy in developing nations, and women's work in Coffee Spoons, the empirical model of women work hours. Because of the way that he treats his wife, obviously we know that's his weakness, but he doesn't seem like a misogynistic guy, even though it's kind of contradictory because of the way he he talks to Emily and then eventually the way he talks to June but I think like the impression that he gives me is that he's kind of pushing them you know and that scene where he gives June you know makes June chooses five women he's doing that to teach her that she has to make difficult decisions in Gilead decisions that maybe outside of Gilead nobody would make but in Gilead you kind of have to do those shitty decisions so that's something that I really like about his character well I think
1: when you said about him like not wanting this to you know he wrote these books but you didn't think he would want this to go the way situations were. like on paper, it looked like a good idea, but in reality, you know, when you make a political decision, like so many other things come into play. And I think that he kind of realized, I mean, he says that in season three and four, I think like he says, I forget which season where he says to June, like about, cause she, you know, he, he doesn't seem to understand why she keeps wanting to go for Hannah when it's just never ending well. And then he said at one point something like, oh, we didn't take into account like a mother's love or the, whatever he said, the, the instinct that a mother has. So I think it's, again, like one of those things where politicians make a decision, but it's gonna have ripple effects that you may not always be able to predict. So that's why I do agree with you that I don't think he's
3: misogynistic or a bad guy at all, but it just- I think he's probably misogynistic and a bad guy but i like him but um the thing about the mother's love though like i think it's interesting that now we're seeing i mean it's pretty early on in gilead and the wives and commanders i think for the most part are infertile and that's why they've created this place so that they can have power and babies and such and that we're now just starting to see them start to understand that these rules they made will apply to their children as they have children i mean they're not their children but as they steal their handmaid's babies it's i think it's sinking into them some of them suddenly holy shit like these rules i wrote are gonna they're gonna be for my kid you know i i think that it was all done so hurriedly and written so hurriedly and they just wanted kids and they just wanted power that now that Serena's probably, it's not probably just Serena that's seeing this horrifying stuff.
1: I know what you mean. And I think also like, you know, Lawrence can write a book and make these policies, but then you have other men getting involved. So then like, look at the creation of the ceremony. You had Guthrie, like Fred seemed like, he didn't seem like he wanted the ceremony to be a thing, but Guthrie was all for that. So now you have other people getting involved and in making
2: like other choices that Lawrence wouldn't have made. Once once you're there, like even if you pushed for it, once you're there, you have to follow the rules because if not, they're going to kill you. Even if you are the, you know, the architect of the economy, like we see it in season four, they're going to kill him. So, you know, that's how Gilead is. But I, I honestly think that he just did this because he wanted to put his economic policies, you know, and he's very, he's very detached. Like if I compare um, Lawrence to Nick, Lawrence is very detached. Like his emotions were reserved for his wife, but you still see that he cares for, for June. He gets to care for her, especially, you know, during that talk in season four and when she's being tortured and they're having that huge dinner. And he says, you know, I really wish it didn't come to this, which tells you that it was his idea to bring Hannah. Um, And then in the phone, you know, he says that he can't help her. You know that he's affected, but his emotions are not, you know, that big versus obviously Nick, who's a lot more involved and invested in his emotions for June.
1: But I think that was a good scene, though, to show that Lawrence can separate his emotions from what needs to be done, whereas Nick cannot when it comes to June.
2: I was able to kind of research a little bit of the art that was in... Lawrence's house and the painting that was in the stairway is a Basquiat which is neo-expressionist and right on top of that one there's one from Georgia O'Keeffe. Usually her paintings are erotic symbolism and she's a modernist and there's also a post-impressionist Paul Goggin that Emily is staring at so he has very modern art which is very un-Gilead so I think that's like we were talking in the spoiler free that's why Emily is so taken aback by what she's seeing. And on Lydia is like, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Those things were supposed to have gotten burned. Like you remember in the first season, they're taking everything away and they're burning things left and right. But obviously art is a commodity. So they weren't going to, you know, burn those things. They're expensive. And we learned that they're also a currency. So I thought it was interesting that that was, you know what was in his house. And obviously knowing that Eleanor was was an art history, an art, art history or an art major? I don't remember what she was art teacher
3: yeah art teacher she was an art professor his wife
2: art professor that's yeah, that's what I meant. She was an art professor so well the 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 picture the Basquiat that's in the stairwell is Julius Caesar, you know with a knife, you know when I was researching you know somebody wrote like well, it's ironic that they use that picture because we know what that's happens in that stairwell with Emily and Aunt Lydia in a future episode yeah, uh, that is
3: interesting
2: oh,
3: I like that. Why do you think that he picked Emily? Why do you just because she wasn't going to report him?
2: I think he likes that challenge, you know. He knew she was smart. Um and Emily, you know, she's been fucking livid since she came back from the colonies. She's been like I've noticed in the rewatch that she is angry with obvious reasons. Yes. but I think it's because I think it's that challenge, you know. Uh, I mean, I sometimes I was under the impression that maybe, you know, this house was kind of like an underground house for people escaping but they don't really yes and no i feel
1: like he's he's with the resistance to a certain limit like he'll help them and let them do what they want within reason but he doesn't want like crazy risks or like to get too deep into it so it's like he's
2: towing the line well yeah because he's going to think about himself obviously he's not going to take a bigger risk even though he is taking huge risks I don't know. I think I think he, he chooses these women for a reason. Like I remember when when June sees him the first time, she uses her Fred voice and he just like yeah. the fuck are you doing? You know?
3: <laughs> you can turn that shit off.
2: Yeah. Like he's like, That's not gonna that's not gonna work. And what he tells Emily in this in this episode is very telling, you know, even though he's cruel when he mentions the, you know, when you lose a child, it's like losing a limb he does it on purpose. He wants to see her reactions. He he wants to, he's pushing her. That's what he's doing. You know, it seems cruel.
3: And he's trying everything. He's trying like humiliation, like the clit was removed. Uh, I mean, he's trying all the different emotions to try and figure out what it is that's going to get her to...
1: Yeah, I think, I think he picks Emily because he likes... I do think he likes the challenge, but I think he finds these handmaids more interesting.
3: Yes, I was about to say that. I think he's just bored and...
1: And look who his next handmaid is. It's June, who obviously is very, um, not a rule follower. And, but again, he's, he's good at reading people. Like look at, look at in episode three season three, when he sees Nick and June look at each other, like instantly he had them. He knew what was going on there.
3: What nobody else in Gilead has ever <laughs> noticed. You're right. He looks June, he looks at Nick and
0: he's like, oh, all right. I got all right. It. I
3: got, yeah, I
0: see you. <laughs> I also think part of the reason why he would pick emily is he's not a gilead believer like we've talked about so and he knows she's not either right so he's no he's not going to get like some pious handmaid who really believes all the you know the bullshit who is not you know he knows emily's not going to report them when they don't do the ceremony
3: that's his first primary priority he has to avoid that at all costs and then from yeah. there i think he's just like hmm, who's interesting
0: right exactly so and he knows based on her history well she's not gonna she doesn't want anything to do with any of this either so let's start looking here you know
3: plus and yeah even like beyond the ceremony i think his number one priority which we haven't fully we've seen a little bit but we haven't fully learned yet is protecting his wife because he really loves eleanor and she's not a gilead acceptable human being so i guess that's probably why the Number one reason that he chooses people that have, that are on their last uh, chance, as Lydia said.
2: Yeah. Same as, same as with the colonies, because I was thinking like, he, they say that he was the one that came up with the colony system, but was he the one that set the nukes off? Like, was it his idea? Or was his idea just simply to have this slavery, because that's what it is, system to have people that you're going to punish? working for the country in an economic you know standpoint and I, I like I don't think he had anything to do with a nuclear fallout even though that's never explained in the show I just think his idea of the colonies was just kind of like this slave system that was a benefit to the country to punish the Gilead criminals it just happens to be that the Gilead criminals are you know the gender traitors and the women and you know those that don't follow the
3: rules I don't love the colonies though. They feel like a hamster wheel, like waste. Like if you wanna put criminals to work, I cannot believe that shoveling radiation soil is useful.
2: I was, when I was rewatching and I was seeing the scene when uh, June tells Nick, you know, I want her to, you know, I named her Holly, like my mom. All of a sudden I thought, I'm like, wouldn't it be nice? in season five, Nick kind of met Holly and then it kind of clicked that it was June's mom.
3: Oh, that'd be so cool! Yes. independently of June, that would be amazing. That
2: would be amazing. Yeah, I'm like Aww. I don't know why, like I want her, back. like I really like her character. I'm like, I, That's want what I was going to say, it would
1: be so cool for her to see what a badass her daughter turned into. And we
2: want her to see June. Oh yeah, I had an argument, not an argument. I had a civil debate with somebody today on Reddit because it was civil. <laughs> I promise it was civil. I bet it was civil. I'm kidding. <laughs> she was saying like the typical thing that you know, she's like June doesn't care about Holly. I'm like okay and I read what she wrote and I'm like why are we why why are we here like she doesn't care about Holly she would sacrifice anything for Hannah and I'm like Hannah's in Gilead you know because I was thinking of this episode too like they just saw what happened to Eden and I know that when she saw the pictures of Hannah in the lake house she was kind of debating that whole thing of well she's being taken care of and she's being loved like what do I do? Do I, you know, like we talked about this, but then seeing what happened to Eden and knowing that Hannah's growing up, she has to get her out. So it's like her first priority was to get Holly out, you know, Holly a baby, but she's like, well, she didn't even plan it. Like the baby could have died. Like, yeah. Like people that cross the borders or leave war-torn countries or they send their kids to safety. They don't pack a bag. You know, they just go. She didn't have like, okay, May 13th, I'm leaving Gilead. Let me pack the diapers. Like that's not how it worked. It, of course it was a risk, but I think the risk was better than, I don't know. I just got annoyed.
0: I do quickly I have a question though so you know and every time I watch the scene I interpret it differently so Nick says I wish I could hold her and June says me too do you think she's saying me too is an I wish I could hold her like June like June herself or me too I wish you could hold her Nick every time I watch it I you. that's, that's I think it was think, herself
3: but I like your guys's version better See, like I said it's I a good question
0: I feel like every time I watch it I interpret it differently so like today when I watched it to me it felt very much like she was saying no Nick I wish you could also hold her
1: I've always actually thought she meant Nick I've actually never really even thought about it being her because I think she she did get to hold her she real she knows that Nick has not had any
3: chance at all to even really be near his daughter I think she misses her daughter so badly she's talking about herself but I love what you guys think and I'm totally cool with it I yeah. Like
0: I said, I just, and every time I watch it, I feel like just depending where I am emotionally, what headspace I'm in, I can, it can go either way, I think. That's an interesting point though. I'd never yeah. thought of that.
3: And apparently that's cool, but I never thought about it that way. All right. So like the biggest parallel that none of us have addressed yet is Hawaii. Um, I was so excited in 4.9 when June brought up Hawaii because obviously as fans of these two and not a ton of scenes to live off of we think of their hawaii scenes a lot but the idea that they are thinking of these conversations while she's in canada and such um it just it was a really really sweet scene and eric techman wrote it i think yes i believe so yeah Thank you, Mr. Tuckman. That was a beautiful scene and I loved it so much. And man, the way that Lizzie like played it and joked and, you know, she's on the verge of tears and, ah, it's also bittersweet and amazing and (laughs) fucking, (laughs) at all times they evoke like at least two to five emotions in me at the same time. And it's very confusing and it's very impressive.
1: I do think it was really cute. You know, we talked about, this is probably the first time Nick and June are seeing each other since Holly was born. And I love how like, just like 409, things are kind of awkward between them, but like they, they crack jokes. Like June makes the old Navy joke here. And then in 409, she makes the hanging joke. And I just love how, I just love that. Like it's such an innocent little thing, but it's it just the stupid jokes. Like they make Nick so happy.
3: And it's so unique to yeah. them. You don't see any other couple making these lame jokes to each other and enjoying it so much, I think. Like anywhere on television. She was making them in her head from the very first moment she met him, right? I'm going to go to the oyster bar. So
2: the Fred hanging next to Serena in the wall wasn't a funny joke? That wasn't, like, banter in that past episode that we discussed? No? Okay. Wait, which one? The Fred uh, will get hanged together next Side by Side. That wasn't, like,
3: Fred-Serena banter? It was not quite the same banter. Oh, okay. (laughs) I didn't get it. But it was Fred and Serena's kind of banter, it seems it's kind of sad that that's not gonna happen, but I like I like what happened. Don't get me wrong.
0: One for two isn't bad. One for two.
3: No, and it's better to draw it out because <laughs> she should get her her torture june's torture was trying out so
0: yeah
1: the last thing i was thinking of though is like you know we see in this episode that serena does show that she's got a little bit of a heart when she sees eden die the way she did and realizes like this is the future for holly and i do kind of feel you know then she lets june like nurse her at the end and i do kind of feel like this is the spark i know we've talked about this but like this is the spark that june still sees in her after everything Serena has put her through. Like again, like I still, it's crazy that she just raped June not that long ago, but like June is already like in this episode, like trying to work with her. And I I feel like this is still the reason why June won't let go of the thought that maybe she can change her or make her realize like she can be a decent person. Which I think brings us into season three and why the first half of the season she keeps trying with Serena and then it ultimately fails because obviously we know how Serena is. So
3: I think it's such a testament. I think it is such a testament to Yvonne as an actress because again, yeah, like you just said, like I'm like, Oh shit, Serena, she understands what's happening. She finally gets it, she's gonna like be a good person when you watch, you know? And like you said two episodes ago. I've never wanted to like personally murder someone more in my life as she held June down being raped. And
1: it speaks to who June is though, too, because actually Elizabeth Moss said in an interview, someone asked her something about one of June's qualities. And she said, one of the things she loves the most about her is that she won't give up on people she sees that little itty bitty piece of like humanity and clings to that and just really she that's why she won't give up on people and
3: it's true like that's how she is until you know season four happens and but she does it with lawrence too so this is a good episode to mention it in because lawrence has just been introduced and that's exactly what she does with him throughout season three and he's not always buying into her what does he call it when he talks to nick the the towel of june osborne or something the towel of june osborne yeah yeah but she does it with him too, you know? And yeah, she's, she's great at that.
2: Yeah, that's what makes us. Uh, he says to Lawrence, you know, she changed me, she changed you. That's basically the child of June Osborne, I guess. But for me, Serena, like, what's the worst thing that can happen to a woman, you know, losing a child and getting raped? And Serena has used those two things against another woman.
1: Well, I think for a lot of us, those are. But for June, like, she this- just, yeah, June just can't
3: give up. Well, June needs to use her still, though. Maybe if she didn't need anything from her, she would be done with her and be like, fuck you, bitch, which she would. She's smart, and she plays... She has to play everybody, and she's good at it for the most part. She, it's funny how little effort she has to put into playing Fred usually, though. I enjoy that. Like with Serena, she has to kind of be genuine or try to pretend to be genuine, and with Fred, it's just like this fake like act. All right, so before we wrap, I did just want to read a little bit from The Art and Making of the Handmaid's Tale about this episode and uh, Commander Lawrence's house. As Eric Tuckman, who penned the teleplay for the penultimate season two episode postpartum, explains, Emily at that point is really at the end of her rope. She's been through hell. She's been damaged emotionally and physically. She's walking into yet another place where she expects to be raped, and she's being escorted by Aunt Lydia, who's pretty much laying out, this is your last best hope, Emily, and make this place work and they walk into a house that has immediately a very different vibe than the Waterfords. It's messy, and there are books everywhere, and there's risque art on the walls. Commander Lawrence comes traipsing down the stairs, played by Bradley Whitford, who is absolutely perfect for the role, and we see right away that he's a very different style of commander. He dispenses with formalities. The Martha talks back to him. He's kind of brusque with Aunt Lydia, and he doesn't include his wife. And what's great about that is it throws Emily even more off balance. The set designers made sure to carry this sense of chaos and danger into the Lawrence House itself, which was done on location in a private home and former town hall with a long and colorful history. It was already kind of like a Dr. Lawrence house, Rob Hepburn remembers, but not the right aesthetic, so we worked a long time on cataloging and removing all the antiques, and then brought in all of our stuff, just layering and layering. My main buyer and I were always told to go back and get more, and the set really evolved as we went along. When it came to creating Emily's room, the production design deliberately set out to break all the rules that had been set for the Waterford house. The handmaid's room is not up in the attic. In fact, it's on the same floor as that of Commander Lawrence's wife. And it has a mirror, but even more extraordinary is that it has a lock on the door and an unblocked fireplace. We want it to be quaint and pretty, not lavish in any way, but not austere either, says production designer Elizabeth Williams. And it kind of throws Emily. She doesn't quite understand what's going on and why things are so different. And it scares her because she doesn't know what to expect. For the stabbing itself, uh, that's the next episode, but this is the deep dive, so I'll read it. The team created a set on stage that mimicked the staircase on location, only they made it wider so the director, Mike Barker, would have room to shoot Emily attacking Aunt Lydia on the stairs after she strikes the first blow in her bedroom. Okay, so I think that's a wrap on our deep dive into Season 2, Episode 12 of The Handmaid's Tale. Come back on Monday for our spoiler-free analysis of the Season 2 finale. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
0: You know, I think Three of us,
1: what we could be. I think about it all the time. Please, just No, it's
0: not. I know June. She's my friend. I care about her. How's your day gone? You look pretty.
2: Thanks. I wore it just for you. Our father's a driver named Nick. He helped me to survive. Yes, you can, because I can't lose you.
1: I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. What about you? Your girlfriend is a badass.